From east to west and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. And I am joined by my co-host and producer Craig Williams. Craig, happy summer. Oh, yeah. As Olaf, as Olaf might say. Yeah. Well, I know I'm <laughs> feeling it, and I, I have a feeling that you're feeling it, too, uh, oh, with all the yeah. warm weather you guys have been having up there. Oh, yeah. We're already in triple digits up here. That's insane. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. insane. But, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before that hits here in Orlando, too. Yeah. But, but you know what? Our battle cry is, you know, it's a dry heat. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh. That's... Much better than the awful, awful humidity and swampy weather of Florida. Yes. So now, now we've, um, you know, we haven't been on the show together in a few months. So what's been going on with you? Oh, nothing really. Uh, just keeping busy with everything. Just always uh, slammed with uh, the Disneyland content that we've been putting out all of June and still have a little bit more to go into july here and then getting ready for the big uh 10th anniversary mega meet that we are having in orlando so things have just been extremely busy yeah yeah and and it was nice i was out there saw the gang back in when was it may (laughs) Uh, it was may right after your alani trip for that's right the shortest of weekend visits yes that's right oh alani was wonderful yeah just just incredible no that's great to hear we haven't really even at the time to talk about everything that happened i mean i heard it all from uh john and kevin's side already just because i uh (laughs) we already recorded their dreams uh unlimited travel podcast about it so i know a little bit about what happened yeah just uh, alani is the most amazing disney resort i have ever been to Uh, this is the first time i think Carol was really disappointed to leave a vacation where, you know, usually after nine days, you know, you're sort of ready to go home. I'm not, but she generally is. And uh, she did not want to leave. It was very emotional. I actually, I completely understand that with Alani, though. It's just something about being there. It's I don't know if it's Hawaii in a general, but uh, it's it's just it's breathtaking there. Every every bit of detail. The, the theming, the environment, the people, mm-hmm. everything together is just yeah. so wonderful. Well, the way Joe Rohde and his team incorporated the Hawaiian culture into mm-hmm. virtually everything is amazing. I mean, it's story te- it's Disney storytelling at its finest. Agree. Uh, uh, which is probably why I like Animal Kingdom so much. Uh, because, cause, you know, that's his park as yeah. well. Yeah. And you know, if you're not a Disney fan, you'll still love this resort because Disney is not in your face. You can you can avoid it if you want. Actually, uh, the, the only thing is when you're in the elevators, you know, you're listening to the Hawaiian music and you suddenly realize this sounds really familiar. And, and it's Disney tunes sung yeah. in ho- the Hawaiian language. 
which is which is remarkable. That's that's how far they've gone, you know, with with trying to make this as authentic as possible. And then they've taken, I think, what everybody's image is of Hawaii, with you know the palm trees swaying in the breeze on the beach and the lush um, tropical foliage, and they created that. Oh yeah, at no, Alani as it's well. Just a paradise. It's it's the easiest way to put it. You can't yeah. you can't really imagine what it will truly be like until you're there experiencing it. It's oh, just absolutely. Not possible. And and all the cast members are so proud to work there. As they um, should be. Yeah, because of the way their culture is celebrated throughout the resort. So, um, really, really wonderful. Yeah. It, they remind me very much of, of cast members at Disneyland. That's one thing people talk about, is how proud they are of working in that park because of its legacy. Um, the Alani cast members are the same way. Yeah, I so. would completely agree 100% with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so, so yeah, but yeah, and, and Carol and I are looking forward to the Mega Meet as well. You know, not not the weather, but the yeah. um, oh, Mega Meet. Uh, the looking people. You know, mm-hmm. No one comes here for the weather and the atmosphere and the environment it's all for the people and in disney what's happening yeah. around it so yeah and i'm looking forward to seeing what's new so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of disappointment over at animal kingdom but you i mean the details are yeah. still there so you'll find a little bit of uh, joy in it hopefully yeah yeah i'm disappointed rivers of light has been delayed and i haven't heard anything more about the jungle um book show after the the pretty the the huge disappointment i've not heard any more buzz on it yeah it's unfortunately they did not find a way to make it better it is just still mediocre garbage so mm-hmm. it's but hey uh, you, you need yeah. a little bit of that every now and then to appreciate the finer things right i suppose I, i'm looking forward to seeing it though so. good good anyway well well here we are uh you know this is our first episode of the july season and i I mentioned i have to i have to correct something that i mentioned on the disneyland show and if if you're not a listener of the disneyland show you really should give us a a listen and because i have history segments over there and and we have a fun team and but i had mentioned that july was our first anniversary of um connecting with walt actually i i got all the anniversaries twisted in my head actually we debuted on the anniversary of disney world in october mm-hmm. and of course july is the anniversary of disneyland so i'm getting all the all the magic kingdoms muddled up in my head <laughs> however it is an anniversary of sorts for Connecting with Walt because it was a year ago when all of us on, from the uh, Disneyland team and the Walt Disney World team on the Diz were together for Disneyland's uh, 60th anniversary that Pete Werner, our, uh, our, our founder, he, uh, he um, gave final approval for Connecting with Walt to go forward after a really long time talking and planning it. Oh yeah. So so it is. So this is sort of this is the anniversary of our our conception, Craig. <laughs> oh, I know, and you're you're right. It does go back even further than that. I can remember years ago now, where you and I were talking about trying to break off history by itself, completely away from everything else, and then it's just transformed into this after yeah. many iterations and changes along the way. So it's yeah. it's just great that there's actually something out there now instead of yeah. nothing 
I think we even had discussions on two different Diz cruises. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It. And that, that kind of dates everything perfectly, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, well, on, on this one, we're going to um, continue our series, um, Windows on Main Street. And um, Walt Disney and those who built Disneyland had their roots in filmmaking. So entering Disneyland is similar to entering a theater. The attraction posters provide a sneak preview as to what is inside. Uh, The names on the windows of Main Street are the credits for some of the many people who contributed to Disneyland in its early years. Um, Typically, the inscriptions on the windows appear as fictional businesses and often refer to a hobby of or the contribution made by the person honored. Now, Disneyland has also dedicated windows in Frontierland, Adventureland, and Toontown. When the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World was built in 1971, this tradition was continued on Main Street USA and other realms of the park. So today, in our Windows on Main Street series, we're going to learn about few more people honored on these windows who dedicated their lives to making Disney parks the happiest places on earth for us all. So, Craig, let's take a walk right down the middle of Main Street, USA, with our listeners. And in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, we're going to stop at the Main Street Athletic Club, about halfway down. And we're going to see a large window right above the Main Street Athletic Club, and it reads, Big Top Theatrical Productions, famous since 55, shows for world's fairs and international expositions, Claude Coates, Mark Davis, John DeCure Jr., and Bill Justice. Now, at least three of these names will be familiar to listeners of my history series on Disneyland and the 60 years of Disneyland um, over on our on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. Um, and even on listening to Connecting with Walt, a couple of these names are going to be familiar. Mm-hmm. But why is the window titled Big Top Theatrical Productions? So do you have any guesses, Craig, before we look further? I have absolutely no idea, Michael. Okay, well, let's take a look at the careers of these men and see if we can solve this puzzle. So let's start with Claude Coates, since his name is at the top of the window. Now, Claude Coates started as a background painter, a color stylist, and a concept designer. And he had the nickname The Gentle Giant, in part because he stood six feet six inches tall. And because those who worked with him recall a gifted, amiable, and exceedingly generous colleague and mentor. Um, Walt Disney would occasionally tease Claude about his height. And Claude very fondly remembered a story about Walt. Um, When the Disneyland stagecoach was completed at the studio, Walt and a driver were giving rides around the lot. But he wouldn't let me get in. He said I spoiled the scale. (laughs) (laughs) I understand where he's coming from there. I know. I know. How tall are you? Uh, It depends on what shoes I'm wearing. If I'm wearing my (laughs) heels, of course, 6'4". Oh, okay. Uh, I'm I'm if I'm wearing tennis shoes, usually six four. So. Okay, so you're right up there with Claude. Yes, just <laughs> I don't wear heels. I need to put that out there. Well, at least not publicly. Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> so, um, so anyway, Claude was born on January 17th, 1913 in San Francisco, California, and he graduated from the University of Southern California in 1934 with an architecture and fine arts degree. Claude was a member of the California Watercolor Society, and he began exhibiting his work after graduation. He also went on to study at Chenard Art Institute in Los Angeles. And Claude's friend, Phil Dyke, after seeing an exhibit of Claude's watercolors, encouraged him to interview with the Walt Disney Studio. And Claude was hired by the studio as an apprentice background painter in June 1935. And at that time at the studio, everybody was hired as an apprentice, no matter what their level of expertise was or their position. So this was a time when Walt Disney was experimenting with the boundaries of animation. So Claude's use of color and his background artistry broke new ground in shorts like Ferdinand the Bull and the Old Mill, where the art was instrumental in creating the mood of the cartoon. And Claude married a Disney ink and paint girl, um, Evelyn Henry, in 1937. Evelyn became head of the ink and paint department during the making of Snow White. And they had two sons, Alan and Lee. Uh, The magnificent watercolor paintings, background paintings that Claude created for Pinocchio continue to be used as a reference by animators and admired by Disney historians, fans, and art collectors for the rich, textured beauty they lend to the classic films. I think that's one of the reasons Pinocchio is my favorite of the animated classics. Just, it's, I think the artwork is breathtaking and the oh, backgrounds I, have a lot to do with that. The shadowing, the special effects. Yeah, no, and, I, I completely agree. Uh, that's As I get older and I start to look at animated features in, in different ways, the two things that stand out more and more, uh, I, I now am far more interested in listening to the scores of movies. Uh, if you have ever heard me talk about movies before, mm-hmm. I, I just constantly talk about the score in the the orchestra arrangements on that. It's just something fascinated. But then particular with animation, it's it's the background. It's not really about the character designs. Uh, it's, you know, for, for some characters that are obviously developed uh, that are just stunning, like, uh, you know, looking at the beast. I, I still am amazed at the work that goes in creating someone like him. But the background is just... It, that's what really makes or breaks an animated movie for me in some cases. Whenever it's very static, very plain, it just doesn't get to me. But then whenever you do have like a Pinocchio or a Sleeping Beauty, that's whenever it really transcends into into another uh, dimension of animated uh, material. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's nice that the background artists are now getting the recognition for their talent and their artistry because it's always... because. Basically, it was considered they're just creating the set for the characters, and all the light is on the characters. And people overlook the uh, the richness and texture of those backgrounds. I mean, look at Bambi. I think Bambi was really what got me to notice the uh, incredible art that oh, yeah. goes into the films, because yeah. that that's amazing. And that was a completely different technique for Disney films oh, and I um, think, by Tyrus Wong. Yeah, I think we owe uh, a lot to actual the the 
it increases an advancement of technology that's gone into a lot of these CGI now, making the backgrounds in these worlds. Uh, you know, Zootopia, whenever that came out, a lot of that wasn't necessarily about, yeah, the characters were cute, the story was good, but it was also about the immersion into the world. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it is different on a 2D level, but it, it's that same feeling. You can you can see glimpses of that, that deepness in Zootopia that are also apparent in something like Pinocchio as well, too. So right. it, it's just, I, I feel like there's more an appreciation now looking back at the older Walt Disney classics now that it has grown into what it is now with movies yeah you're talking about the the background like zootopia i found myself looking at the background to finding dory more than i was looking at the characters because there was so much going on in the background or it was so beautiful especially in the closing credits yeah i I was just watching what was happening in the background with the fish and the movement of the kelp and oh uh, 100 it was was incredible yeah finding nemo was the first time Mm -hmm. that you know, obviously, Pixar was impressive. I grew up uh, with Pixar, with Toy Story coming out whenever I was just seven or eight years old, and then watching it all develop. I mean, Finding Nemo, whenever they created that ocean landscape, that's whenever things truly, truly changed mm-hmm. with Pixar for just just the better. Uh, I mean, nothing, nothing wrong against stuff like Toy Story and uh, Bugs Life and Monsters, Inc., but... What, what they did with the ocean in Finding Nemo was just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, just subtly better with Finding Dory. But you can tell truly how many improvements they've even made just in the past 13 years or however long it's been since since Nemo came out. Yeah, I think it's been about 12. You know, the artists, the Pixar artists that work on Finding Nemo, they went back to Bambi to look at Tyrus Wong's work to see how he conveyed the richness and lushness of the vast forest with just a few strokes, brush strokes, because they realized they had to do that for the vastness of the ocean. So um, so those classic films are still inspiring our modern artists and animators. Yeah, so if anyone out there doesn't understand what we're talking about, just hit pause. Go watch at least <laughs> Pinocchio and, and Bambi, and then mm-hmm. get back to us as soon as you're done. Exactly. And and Claude um, developed the backgrounds and color stylings for many of those films. Um, he worked on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Fantasia, uh, Dumbo, Saludos Amigos, Victory Through Air Power, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Melody Time, Song of the South, uh, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Fun and Fancy Free, Cinderella, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Lady and the Tramp. Now, Walt took notice of Claude's quiet, humble nature. Of Walt's relationship with Claude, Evie Coates said, Walt was always nice to Claude. He knew that Claude was sensitive, and instead of putting down something Claude was doing, he'd suggest an alternative. Walt was so impressed with Claude's background work on Song of the South that he invited Claude to attend the film's opening with him in Atlanta. Hmm. So in 1955, Claude was one of the artists Walt pulled out of the studio to work on Disneyland as it neared completion. Um, Claude had studied architecture as well as painting, and he seemed a natural pick for designing the interiors of the dark rides. Um, He started with Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. 
Amongst other things, Coates had a remarkable ability for squeezing an amazing amount of ride into a small space. Um, show designer Tom Morris offered Claude this compliment. Um, those dark rides were crammed into little garage spaces, and the fact that they worked as well as they do is another example of creative resourcefulness. The Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland versions are larger, but not better. Uh, I mean, it's been a while, obviously, since I was able to ride the Walt Disney World Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, but I remember having quite the fondness for it that I try to get whenever I go on Mr. Toad at Disneyland, which I do love it, but it just doesn't quite connect like my memories do of being able to ride Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in Walt Disney World. Yeah. I, well, and just the fact that, that had, there are two separate rides. Yeah. In the in the Magic Kingdom version, and I mean, Rolly Crump put a lot into that to make yeah. each side unique. Yeah, but if so. we're talking the rest of the dark rides in Disneyland, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer every single other one out there. Yeah, yeah. If you ever have a chance to look at the blueprints for those rides, and a lot of them they're online, or at least there's sketches of them, like overhead sketches. Mm-hmm. It is amazing how much they do put into those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, the one little tidbit that you pointed out during our uh, attractions Disneyland show that we put out in in June, you talked about how uh, the one uh, scene whenever you're in Alice in Wonderland is warmer than every other scene because you're over top of the uh, hell sequence in Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Even something like that, I never put together that... Yeah, those are basically butted right up against each other. It's all so yeah. close to each other, but you don't think about that when you're on because you're just so you're so involved in everything that's happening. Yeah, I was looking at uh, sort of an overhead. It was a recreation of sort of the blueprint for the Magic Kingdom's Haunted Mansion. You know, what, what mm-hmm. the facade looks like and then the show building. It is amazing, even that layout. Yeah. Um, how, how they structured that so So, um, now Claude was a pioneer in the use of fluorescent paint under blacklight for attractions Uh, the sets of Disneyland Fantasyland attractions were two dimensional images painted onto theatrical flats and cutouts so and the reason for this was to give them a similarity to their original animated cartoons and and I'm sure budget had something to do with that as well (laughs) um Claude's technique with fluorescent paint and blacklight gave the sets a sense of dimension. And Claude reasoned the rides wouldn't be nearly as good if they were under incandescent regular light because they're not large enough. So as a show designer, he was part of the development team for the Grand Canyon and Primeval World dioramas, the Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Snow White's Scary Adventures, The Submarine Voyage, Adventures Through Inner Space, and several others. And Claude was also part of the design teams for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair attractions, including the Magic Skyway, Carousel of Progress, and It's a Small World. So, of all those, which one's your favorite? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sorry uh, to put you on the like, spot. All of them are just the World's Fair attractions? Uh, out of out of all the ones that you listed, where, what's your favorite of all of them? Hmm. Well, I, I know everybody always says it's, it's a small world is mine. And it, and it is, because I do think a, a lot of it, it encompasses um, Walt's philosophy. 
and his hope yeah. for the world. But I think Pirates of the Caribbean, to me, is it's the ultimate Disney attraction. It's just, it's almost perfection in the way it combines. It's not a story. It's really sort of a set of experiences. But the way it combines how it sets the stage, how it sets the mood from, you know, you, you know we have the, the caverns. We, we set out in the bayou. We have that yeah. extended cavern sequence that they didn't have room for in, in the Magic Kingdom. And then, and that just sets the mood. Then you have what has to be the grandest reveal of any attraction when you, well, now you go through the mist and all that. I preferred the previous one um, with the recording. Yeah. And and then and, and then suddenly there was what was the Wicked Wench. Well, the Wicked Wench, whatever it is, is now, um, you, you see the pirate ship just suddenly before you. And... And then just the, the the combination of the humor and the music and the the depth of of that attraction is I think it's just remarkable. It's Imagineering at its finest, and I think it's I think it's just Disney storytelling, you know, at its at its finest. Oh, what about you, what about you? I'm actually probably going to throw you for a loop on this one, and a lot of people out there, I. Of all the things that we listed off here, my favorite is actually the the Grand Canyon and Primeval World di- dioramas on the mm-hmm. Disneyland Railroad. I oh. I always had an appreciation for at least Walt Disney World's Railroad. Uh, growing up, going on it, and then as, as a local being here, but it wasn't until my first trip as an adult to Disneyland and getting to ride around it and then coming back uh, for an ABD and getting to uh, ride on the Lily Bell and have all this experience. Like, I am so enamored now with the Disneyland Railroad. It still hasn't translated over into Walt Disney World. There's something that's just not quite the same about it, but I I love it. And going through the Grand Canyon and Primeval World, I mean, it's just something about it gets me every time you start going through as soon as you hear the the swell of the music dun, 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 yeah. dun, like <laughs> I, I i just love it i i don't know what it is it's just it connects with me so yeah it is magnificent i think the difference for me between the two railroads is that ours is really really is a grand circle tour and that we can see the park and the Disney World one, you don't see as much of the park. Yeah, it just as you the, go around. The Disney World one feels more like transportation mm-hmm. to shuttle people around from one place to another who don't really want to walk to to get around all the area. And you know, while while it is a good use for that, like Disneyland, I in something about it unless i already wrote it once the entire way around i can't see myself getting off yeah i i I need you know i need to at least make that full circle and then if i want to go back to toontown or something then i'll ride it all the way back around again but you have to make the full circle at least once oh i agree full experience that that's one of my the 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 railroad is one of my must do attractions Along with pirates, actually, in yeah. this small world. I mean, basically <laughs> everything. So. Yeah, yeah. But, but, um, yeah, but I agree. I, the, the diorama is is magnificent. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, I really like it. So, and and you, if you really want to get a different perspective when they reopen the railroad, and um, try if you can if you can sit in a tender 
because um, you know, right behind the, yeah. the the engineer, because you're you're raised a little higher than the guests in the um, cars, and you get a better view of the diorama, and you realize that there's stuff below the eye level of the trains that's oh. there that you don't necessarily you don't quite see when you're riding in the in the locomotive cars. I cannot wait to do that. I yeah. wish I would have known before. Now I have yeah. to wait forever. And that's how I met Ward Kimball's grandson. Because oh, that's he awesome. was one of the engineers. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah, so we had a great chat about his grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> so now now in describing the correlation between his work as a background artist and his work as a show designer, Claude said that in backgrounds, he always thought in terms of mood and color. He said that various colors and shapes created emphasis on where you wanted people to watch and what you wanted them to see. And that's really the same with rides. In terms of Disneyland attractions, Claude said that light is always the thing that focuses attention. Now, Claude and Disney artist and designer Ken Anderson also did the murals for the Snow White, Peter Pan, and Mr. Toad attractions. And their goal was to bring the characters and the stories from the films back to the guests as they waited in line. Pirates of the Caribbean is considered by many the best attraction ever designed for a Disney park. I just said that myself not too long ago. (laughs) Um, Now, Claude served as the art director and designer for the attraction, and he created the environments and settings for Mark Davis's characters. And the backgrounds and environments Claude created were perfect for focusing guests' attention on Mark Davis's wildest crew that ever sacked the Spanish main. And the Haunted Mansion is another franchise attraction both Claude Coates and Mark Davis worked on together. And the planning of the Haunted Mansion went through many concepts and difficulties, due in a large part to the passing of Walt Disney, whose vision and decisiveness had guided all facets of the company since 1923. And there are many stories alluding to the uneasy working relationship that existed between Claude and Mark on the Haunted Mansion. Now, Claude was always the gentleman, and he said of working with Mark, Mark would work up drawings and I'd find space to put his ideas into the show. And Mark said of Claude, he was a background man, and he studied architecture at USC. His work was very commendable. He would do the settings for things, the environment within the attraction. I guess he did the framing, and I did the dancers within the frame. He was a nice fellow. Wow, talk about a compliment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So so it it was interesting because after Walt Disney passed away, there was nobody who was good at teaming people together as Walt was. And so Mark and Claude, the attractions they developed were uh, like Claude. He did... um, like adventures through inner space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that he went on to develop were all very environmental. Yeah. And the things that Mark did, such as America Sings and Country Bear Jamboree, were all shows. They were exactly. all character-driven with very little um, background and, and environment. So, um, so Walt Disney knew who to put together and how to sort of keep... Um, egos in check Mm 
Yeah. And all of that was lost yeah. when with his passing. And so that's when we see sort of differences in, in rides, in attractions for a while. So um, after the passing of Walt Disney, um, Claude helped conceptualize the Magic Kingdom's Mickey Mouse Review at Walt Disney World, along with the reimagining of several Disneyland attractions for the Magic Kingdom. Um, Claude also worked on numerous attractions for Epcot Center, including the Universe of Energy, World of Motion, Horizon, Spaceship Earth, and several World Showcase pavilions. And he also worked on Tokyo Disneyland, where he helped design Meet the World and the Cinderella Castle Mystery Tour. Um, Claude also enjoyed mentoring the next generation of artists and designers. So every day he made a point of discussing ideas, art, and current events with the younger Imagineers and encouraged them on their projects. One of the people that um, he really helped was Tony Baxter. And Tony Baxter just has nothing but praise, you know, for Claude. Hmm. Um, Marty Scalar reminisced about his friend Claude Coates. Um, Walt had a history with Claude in animation, with the backgrounds that he did. Some of his paintings for Pinocchio are fabulous. And I was astounded because he really didn't do much painting at Walt Disney Imagineering. Walt saw how Cloud could translate that talent into three dimensions. And not everybody could do that. There really has never been, and there still isn't anybody his equal in laying out a ride. He'd prefer to work in dimension, because that's the way our shows would be completed. He could visualize in three dimensions, whereas other people had to make a sketch first. Claude could go right into the model shop and start working on something. This ability to understand how things were going to work dimensionally helped him as a leader to hold to the overall concept of a project. So much of the talent back then gathered around Claude because he was the most facile and the most skilled at this. After a long and happy 54 years with Disney, Claude retired in November 1989 and was named a Disney legend in 1991. He passed away in January 1992. And looking back on his 54 years with the Disney company and working with Walt Disney, Claude said, Walt was not easy to work for, but he was wonderful to work with. Working with Walt was really easy if you could show him exactly what he wanted to see. <laughs> and isn't that true for all of us? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that is just... That's a great great way to look at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, since we've talked so much about Mark Davis, it seems like he's he's just the natural to, to talk about next. Let's see, did you have any final thoughts on Claude Coates? Uh, I, you know, I I love all the stuff he's done. He's just it, he's one of those ones that uh, you know bigger Disney fans do obviously recognize his name, but he's definitely not appreciated enough for everything that he he did contribute. And hopefully, more stuff like this will get his name out there more with uh, the people who who just aren't really aware. Mm-hmm. And and there is a lot more to what he did. We're, what I'm very much doing are sort of, um, oh, I don't know, sort of the Reader's Digest version exactly, yeah. of these. I mean, someday I do hope to do, uh, you know, full episodes on almost all of these, um, these Imagineers. There's one that 
I'm pretty much going to tell you everything that is out there on him. But uh, these others are definitely all deserve full um, episodes. And, oh, and yeah. I'll, I'll do that someday. And it could even go beyond, like with Mark Davis. I mean, there's books about him. So oh, I know. Just, oh, there's, just, there's one sitting on my floor right yep. here at it's, my feet. <laughs> mine just got packed away tonight. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> So now, now, so Mark Fraser Davis was born on March 30th, 1913 in Bakersfield, California. And Davis's father, Harry A. Davis, traveled the United States in an attempt to make his fortune in the oil field and mining boom towns with his wife, Mildred, and son, Mark, in tow. So all this traveling meant that young Mark was always the new boy in school. He attended 23 different schools before he graduated. Now, Mark turned to drawing to fill in his spare time. In an interview with John Canemaker, Mark recalled those early years. In a new town where I wasn't acquainted with anyone, I would amuse myself by drawing. Mark became a self-taught artist, sketching at local zoos and copying illustrations from anatomy books he found in libraries, which would be of value to him in a few years. After high school, Mark sought formal instruction at the Kansas City Institute of Arts, after which he attended the California School of Fine Arts in San Francisco and the Otis Art Institute of Los Angeles. And Mark furthered his formal instruction by spending seven months touring Europe and attending various art schools. Mark was impressed with some of the animated shorts produced by the Walt Disney Studio and mailed a letter to the studio requesting an interview under the name M. Fraser Davis. The studio rejected his inquiry, noting they were not hiring women artists. David used his full or Davis used his um, full first name in future inquiries to overcome the prevailing practice of not hiring women animators. And on December 2nd, 1935, Mark started as an apprentice studio artist. So Mark's first major assignment at Disney was to serve as an assistant animator to Grim Natwick on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Natwick had helped develop the popular Betty Boop for the Fleischer Studio. Um, Working with Natwit, Mark continued to develop his skills as an artist, and being noticed for his talent by Joe Grant, Grant moved Mark into his character model department after Mark finished his work on Snow White. In his new role, Mark's understanding of animal form, which he gained from his studies of those anatomy books in his youth, enabled him to develop the models for characters such as Young Bambi and Thumper. Walt Disney was especially impressed with Mark's design of the skunk flower, and he promoted Mark to animator. Mark then worked closely with Milt Call and Frank Thomas, and that's how I became an animator, said Mark. Mark went on to animate Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox in Song of the South, for which he was the directing animator. He also began a 17-year teaching position at the Chouinard Art Institute, where he met a young female student named Alice Estes, who would later become his wife a few years after she concluded her studies. And she's very clear in all her interviews, there was no (laughs) (laughs) hanky-panky. That's great. I love hearing her talk. Oh, isn't she wonderful? And you know what? I've heard some of the stories... Oh gosh, at least five or six times, and I never get tired of them. I mean, I mean, they're just wonderful. I, I, I can just 
her story of the anatomically correct pirates of the Caribbean yeah. are just just hilarious. Oh, so. I've I've heard a lot of stories from her. I've only actually heard her in person once. So I was supposed to see her at least two more times since then. But uh, obviously, she's she's over ninety years old and yeah. very. Uh, you know, she's she's been very ill at times. And yeah, we're we're lucky that she is still around. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah, her health is very fragile. And yeah. um, but oh, is she feisty? Yeah, she, I and, mean, but, but also. Uh, brilliant with everything she's done. Oh, oh, definitely, definitely, and she adored Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if she's, I, 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 she still misses him. I mean, to this day. And oh, his, I could only and, and his studio because what they did is they they owned two homes um, next to each other, and one basically served as his studio. And I think it looks still as if Mark had just walked out the door. <sighs> So, I mean, his coats are still hanging up on the hooks. And oh, my goodness. His brushes are still, you know, in their cups and, oh. you know, all that. Hopefully that can become a museum one day. Yeah. yeah. And she is looking for a place for Mark's art. And they have a huge collection of New Guinea art um, because they, they really developed an appreciation for that art and, mm-hmm. and, and, the, um, and, and the people. And um, she she is looking for a uh, a museum that will display it in a way that she feels it deserves to be displayed. So um, one day, anyway. yes. <laughs> so so the, then Mark then spent over a decade designing and animating female characters as he continued in feature films. Many consider Mark's greatest contribution to Disney animation. Um, it was his creation of some of Disney's most famous female characters, Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty, Tinkerbell in Peter Pan, and Cruella de Vil in 101 Dalmatians. So, now, Mark was the directing animator for the title character Cinderella, and Mark animated the Cinderella transformation scene as the fairy godmother dressed Cinderella for the ball, which Walt Disney once stated was his favorite scene out of any Disney film. And when you think that that special effect of all the the fairy dust was all hand animated, that's amazing. Oh, absolutely. So, um, huh. Mark Mark followed up Cinderella by overseeing the animation of Alice for 1951's Alice in Wonderland, and for 1952's Peter Pan, um, Mark was responsible for creating and animating Tinkerbell. In Peter Pan, Mark had to animate a pixie that both communicated and conveyed emotion only through physical and facial expressions, since she was a character who did not speak. And that really was Mark's forte. He was being able to communicate emotion and expression and all that in, in, in just a slight movement or, or a slight expression. And, and he was able to, to transform that into... Uh, the animation of audio animatronic figures. Uh, no, it's uh, obviously, yeah, it, it really translated well into that. But uh, you just, if you're talking about who he was as an animator and how important he was as an animator, you, you have to really step back and look at Tinkerbell in that way that, you know, obviously a lot of attention goes to the Fab Five and everyone knows that Mickey is the one and only icon for Disney. But right after that i mean 
a lot would argue that your next one is probably Tinkerbell. That mm-hmm. is the the most recognizable, and that's Mark Davis right there. So, oh yeah, um, it's it, quite the person. Oh yeah, and well, she's the sort of almost the icon of Magic Kingdom and Disneyland. Yeah, in many ways. Um, now, for S- Sleeping Beauty in 1959, what's remarkable is that Mark oversaw the development and animation of both Maleficent and Princess Aurora. And for his final animated film, Mark created the character of Cruella DeVille for 1961's 101 Dalmatians. And what was very unusual is Mark was the lone animator um, for Cruella DeVille. Normally, you know, other animators will contribute to, you know, different scenes of a character. Mark did Cruella DeVille from start to finish. No one else touched her. That's so impressive. Yeah. Now, after 101 Dalmatians, Mark was not assigned to any new projects at the studio. And due to the high cost and length of time it now took to produce cartoons and animated features, Walt was seriously considering discontinuing them. And Mark recalled, when Walt was going to discontinue cartoons, he knew my drawings. So he wanted me to work on something for Disneyland. And one of them was Nature's Wonderland. Then he wanted me to look at other things, including a pirate show. So in 1962, Walt Disney assigned Mark to visit Disneyland and provide notes on how to improve the mind train through nature's Wonderland attraction, which was a relaxing train ride through the American Southwest in the Painted Desert, in which a cast of more than 200 mechanical animals resided. You you couldn't even really call them audio animatronics. They had very basic movement. Yeah. And not and not all of them moved. They would um, they they would have one or two of the characters move, so you sort of could focus your attention on them, you know, in a scene. Yeah. So. Yet I am still insanely jealous that I've never been able to see this, obviously, because I wasn't alive. But <laughs> yeah, and that was one of my favorite attractions when I was a boy. I I found it fascinating. Uh, I think because of some of the the humorous vignettes that Mark put into it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite, uh, which I, I'm sure you are completely familiar with and have watched many times, but the uh, the People and Places documentary that shows off a lot of, like, Mind Train through mm-hmm. Nature's Wonderland and all, all of Disneyland in such a classic period of time. Like, yes. I, I love watching it. Just, it, it's the closest you can get to ever experiencing it now. Oh, I know. I know. And, and it's the Disneyland I remember as a boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Mark suggested the mine cars be reoriented to allow guests to better observe the scenes, and he provided suggestions on restaging several scenes and adding gags to um, to make the ride more humorous and engaging. And Walt and guests were delighted with the results. So Walt then asked Mark to provide direction on reimagining the Jungle Cruise. Mark's ideas included the Indian elephant pool and the trapped. African Safari, um, gags which were later included in the Walt Disney World version of the attraction. Now, Mark remembered those early years of Disneyland. When I went down to Disneyland the first time, I felt from the very beginning that there was very little that was entertaining or funny to me. There was just a lot of stuff, like a World's Fair. They had the House of Tomorrow and all that. As soon as I started to work on this stuff, I tried to find ways to add something that people could get a laugh out of. When I redid the Jungle River ride, I added the elephant pool and the trapped safari. 
My designs are some of the first laps found in any attraction at the park. After all, people go down to Disneyland to be amused, not to be educated. That was my feeling. You want to take your family down there and have some fun and be entertained. And humor doesn't hurt anyone. Now, the artist in Mark embraced Walt's new form of three-dimensional animation, audio animatronics. So Mark worked on the development of the Enchanted Tiki Room and designed the singing tiki poles and the artwork adorning the attraction walls. And the Walt Disney World version of the um, attraction, Tropical Serenade, was an opening day attraction. Mm -hmm. And that we were so excited to get rid of to do... uh to add in Yago uh, and Zazu um, eventually. Under new management. Yeah. But but they got what they deserved. They were struck <laughs> by lightning or something. Yeah. <laughs> Caught a flame. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you have the, uh, in your version, because I don't remember it from when I was a teenager, did you originally have the magic fountain in the middle? No, I can never remember having the the fountain in the middle oh. because the first time i ever saw that it uh at disneyland it, my mind was just blown so okay because that's so central well literally but also just in terms of the effects and the yeah, mystique I mean, of it all but that's also the thing about disneyland like the, the whole the whole center of the attraction at disneyland having the fountain and having all the pineapples there like we don't have any pineapples in ours um, right in that area, and ours is so mu- the room is so much bigger and broader that although we are able to, you know, there there's a lot of stuff happening in all of that space. It's not like it's just big and open, and and they left it that way. It mm-hmm. just I I don't know if the fountain necessarily would be as impressive at mm-hmm. Disney World as it is in Disneyland because you're just you're crammed into that tiny tiny room. Everyone together. It's an intimate space. It really is. (laughs) It's a little tiki hut. I know. And I, you know, I I love (laughs) that we have the same show. Mm -hmm. Minus the fountain, obviously. I like that we have all the same songs and stuff. But it's just something, again, I'm in love with Disneyland. Something about Disneyland is just, it's it's far superior to me. Everything about it. Uh, and uh, that experience starts with the Enchanted Tiki Garden outside, obviously. But it's it's just so much more magical at Disneyland than it is at Walt mm. Disney World. Yeah, well, well, Mark was assigned to all of Disney's projects for the 1964-65 World's Fair, including those that would influence Disneyland and Walt Disney World attractions. Due to his knowledge of anatomy, Mark was responsible for animating the audio-animatronics movements, including the movements for rising and standing for great moments with Mr. Lincoln, which, as you know, was a precursor to the Hall of Presidents. Mm -hmm. Um, He added story elements to the Carousel of Progress, which was moved from the fair to Disneyland. And then, sadly, the attraction was later moved to the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World and opened on January 15, 1975 in Tomorrowland. Finally, for It's a Small World, Davis provided story ideas, including gags for Imagineer Mary Blair's settings. Some of Mark's contributions include the Dutch children clicking their shoes while sitting in giant tulips, um, the Indian boy and girl dancing with a happy tiger, and the Scottish boy in a kilt playing the bagpipes as a Scottish girl dances the Highland Fling. 
For this attraction, he worked with his wife, Alice, who designed and created the costumes for the audio-animatronic dolls. And, and she did the same for Pirates of the Caribbean. Amongst the original projects Disney gave Mark was a pirate wax museum that had been in development since 1958. And Mark made some initial sketches, but put his work aside for the World's Fair projects. Now, past dark rides enclosed in a show building retold Disney films, such as Snow White, Peter Pan, and Mr. Toad. The pirate ride would lack a pre-existing story. So instead of a story, Mark immersed guests into an experience. And as I previously explained when we talked about Claude Coates, um, Walt teamed Mark with Claude, who created the ride sets for Mark's characters and humorous gags. Mark, Claude, and their team opened the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction at Disneyland on March 18, 1967. Now, Pirates of the Caribbean was not an opening day attraction for the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. Mark had plans for an even more elaborate boat dark ride called the Western River Expedition, which would have taken guests through Old West scenes populated with the typically humorous characters of Mark's design. But due to guest complaints about not having Pirates of the Caribbean, Card Walker ordered the creation of a version for the Magic Kingdom. Mark's River Ride was shelved for a new version of Pirates of the Caribbean. Dissatisfied, Mark did use the new version as an opportunity to update the story. He ended the ride in a treasure room instead of the arsenal. And he had guests unload before the bateau traveled back up the waterfall. Mark didn't like the fact that people would back up and then go up the waterfall, and then there was really no payoff for going Uh back up the waterfall. Um, The Pirates of Florida would finally get their ill-gotten booty with the opening of the attraction on December 15, 1973. Meanwhile, some of the audio-animatronic figures designed for the Western River Expedition, such as buffaloes and chickens, would find a home in Living with the Land at Epcot Center. And concepts for Mark's plans contributed to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and Splash Mountain. A haunted house attraction had been planned for Disneyland's Main Street USA as early as 1951, when concepts for the park were being developed. The exterior of the mansion had finally been built in 1963 in New Orleans Square, but the 64-65 World's Fair delayed further development of the attraction. In 1964, Davis completed his first concepts for the attraction, which included the introduction of the narrating ghost host. And as I mentioned, after the passing of Walt Disney in 1966, Dick Irvine reunited Mark Davis and Claude Coates to Mm -hmm. manage the completion of the Haunted House attraction. But the designers were divided between differing concepts for the attraction. Um, Mark preferred a humorous attraction, whilst Claude preferred a scary attraction. And both ultimately got a little of each by designing a haunted mansion and included both scary and comedic moments. Yeah, and that's honestly why it is so iconic to this date and is still around. I, I could... I could actually see if it would have went one way or the other how this could have just become another relic and passed over attraction eventually in Disney history. Yeah, I agree. I think somehow it keeps it fresh and upbeat 
and and it and it tells and it, it, it the mood is interesting too because you know you have that sense of foreboding and then you sort of have that playful relief you exactly. know a, a, as you exit and then sort of and then that then the thread of the hitchhiking ghost is sort of fun and ominous no yeah it's know. just it's perfectly balanced throughout the entire ride mm-hmm. it goes back and forth between the two and that that is what makes it so repeatable. That's why it is still around to this day. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's a franchise attraction. Yep. It's in almost every every Disney park. Shanghai does not yet have it. Um, on August 9th, 1969, the long-awaited Disneyland Haunted Mansion opened to record crowds. And as the Disneyland version was being produced... A second, larger, and more elaborate version with a colonial fortress-like facade was being built in Florida, and the Haunted Mansion was an opening day attraction of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom on October 1st, 1971. So the Haunted Mansion is probably my second favorite Disney attraction. So so out of the two, uh, and I've seen Tokyo's as well, um, but out of the two, Craig, which do you have a preference over Haunted Mansion's? Um, it's tough. I go back and forth on it. Um, the big reason why I love Disneyland's is because just being in the the elevator and the stretching room going down, you you just don't realize how far down you go mm-hmm. uh, until the first time you do it, and then you go back to Disney World and you you experience it then, and it's like, oh, okay, the the ceiling just rose up like six feet that's all it did (laughs) so part of that experience it's just it's so unique and different and i i actually you know part part of me does love the walking portion where before you get on your doom buggies you get to see like the lightning flashing and the images changing like that that i i love that however the past couple times i've been to disneyland i i don't know if it's just that i go at busier times but I, I feel like constantly I have cast members yelling, no, you need to keep moving on, you need to keep going towards the ride. And it's like, but this this is part of the attraction. Yeah, and, I, I agree. And, and they need to stop that because we clearly yeah. know which direction to go in. Yeah, I, I understand <laughs> that there are some people, but especially during Haunted Mansion holiday, uh, you know, I love taking it all in because you only have it for that short, short period of time. I want to make the most out of it. And I feel like they... Are they do whatever they can to discourage hanging out and really taking it all in? Yeah. So, you know that's that's where I do love the beauty of Disney World. Is where well, you don't have to worry about that because you just get to slowly ride past it all, then then have the awesome M C Escher stair room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, then I have to give the thumbs down to ours because I am not a fan of having the. Um, the hitchhiking ghosts be animated as you're going past. Oh, is, I just, it, is it because it's so different from the other ghosts in the house? Yeah. It, well, it's different because it is different from the other ghosts. And then I just, it, that's where that playful humor side that we were talking about before, that's where it goes over the line for me where I, it's, you know, Pepper's ghost effects. Those, those are still really, it's still a really cool payoff as you're going by. I don't. I don't ever hear anyone complain about the Disneyland 
Haunted Mansion ending with the hitchhiking ghost. I don't ever hear anyone saying, "Well, it'd be great if we had, if we had the the ghost taking our faces off and putting them on someone else's, like stuff mm-hmm. like that." It's it's still an effect that really does have a payoff, um, and I just it, it doesn't it doesn't feel right to me in Disney World. I know there's people who absolutely adore it, but I it just it doesn't. It doesn't fit the rest of the attraction. It feels like they tried to go too technologically advanced with it, and sometimes you have to you have to step back and appreciate it for what it was. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's what they did with the redesign. Whenever they added in the MC Escher stair room, you know that's where they said, "Okay, well, we're not going to overdo it. It's just going to be nice, subtle, and more of the environment. Have some of the the footprints walking around so you get that effect but it's not over the top and i feel like with that ending they went over the top so mm-hmm. um long story short it's uh, they are kind of equal to me it's yeah there's stuff that i dislike about both of them but overall it's still i mean we're talking a top five attraction in my book yeah oh absolutely yeah i i think for me the the magic kingdom version has a slight edge just because it's longer i love the facade and just because we don't have brick in california due to earthquakes and i so i like the look of it and but um if if it just had the walkthrough portion it would to me it would be perfect yeah and because uh because i feel like i'm really in a house you know because of the walkthrough and honestly, it. with some of the crowds that we get at Disney World, and I'm not saying this to like stereotype, but I feel like that problem that we have with Disneyland where they're yelling at you to move forward, pushing you to move forward, I feel like you didn't get there that at Disney World as much because you don't have that issue. Everyone's already pushing <laughs> in that room. To, they are, you know, it's the mad dash. You hope mm-hmm. that the other stretching room doesn't open up any anywhere near you in mm-hmm. Disney World because then it's it's just a, a massive cramming into that tiny tiny room as you funnel to get on your doom buggy yeah it, it's absolutely awful yeah well in november 1966 um, walt disney visited mark and discussed his future project the country bear jamboree for disney's mineral king ski resort walt told mark his musical bears were a winner and as he left walt did something he had never done before he said Goodbye, Mark. This would be Mark Davis's last meeting with Walt Disney. Three weeks later, Walt Disney passed away. Plans for the Mineral King Resort fell through, but the musical bears made an appearance at Disneyland and still performed daily in the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland. Mark continued working as an Imagineer, developing his favorite attraction, America Sings, a musical audio-animatronic show featuring 114 characters for the United States Bicentennial, which replaced Carousel of Progress at Disneyland. In 1978, Mark retired after 43 years with Disney, but even in retirement, he still continued or contributed creatively to Imagineering. He consulted on Epcot Center's World of Motion attraction and on Tokyo Disneyland. In 1989, Mark was named a Disney legend and was also the recipient of the Mouseker, which is an in-house award given by the Walt Disney Company for specific reasons, including service to the company as well as to the community as a whole. The award was first presented by Walt Disney. On January 12th, 2000, Mark Davis suffered a stroke, and later in the day with Alice at his side, he passed away. 
There are a number of tributes to Mark Davis throughout the Walt Disney World Resort, besides the window. The most obvious tribute, though, is the window on the west side of Main Street, USA, that bears his name. Another tribute can be found in Disney's Hollywood studio, in the magic of Disney Animation Courtyard, where four of Walt's nine old men, including Mark, set their handprint in con- handprints in concrete slabs. Let's hope that survives. Uh, it didn't, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that left whenever they... Uh whenever they converted it to Star Wars Launch Bay, they actually, they didn't destroy them. They did pick them up and they moved them out of there. I wonder where they're going to put them. I can't remember where they put them. I I know someone told me where they were being moved to, but unfortunately they weren't there. But I was happy that I was able to get over to uh, the Magic of Disney Animation on one of its final days and actually get pictures of of that entire area back there so i'll have to dig it up and uh, yeah put it in the show notes definitely hopefully hopefully i was smart enough and backed up my camera (laughs) that day now additionally there are hidden tributes to mark throughout the magic kingdom in the final scene of pirates of the caribbean a family crest with the name marco deviso can be found hanging from the wall as jack sparrow delights in his treasure in the haunted mansion queue a tombstone tribute can be found the stone reads in memory of our patriarch dear departed grandpa mark finally near country bear jamboree a crate is labeled davis tobacco and, and you could even argue that the fact that Country Bear Jamboree is still open is also a tribute to him because, you know, it's just, it's getting less and less love as the years go on. But well, especially as they shorten the show. <laughs> yeah. But it, it just, it blows my mind. Like, uh, one of the nights that we were there with Pete is a group all together. It was, uh, it was his first time going in there. Really? Which none of us could believe. Yeah. It's, it's just so overlooked but it is so funny it is it is one of my favorite attractions at at disney world but it's that's constantly happening to me all of the you know all of the attractions that are labeled as the boring ones they are slowly and slowly creeping up my list to be in my favorites yeah. i could i could make a good day out of just going on carousel progress uh all of presidents Tiki Room and and then Country Bear Jamboree and People Mover. That's on my must do as well. See, I, I don't <laughs> even have to do that. I'm well. See, know, that's because that, you're still outside. There's still humidity. Well, that's because we trashed ours out here. <laughs> yeah, well, so. rocket rods. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, but uh, and of course at Disneyland we also have tributes to Mark, including his name on a window. Um, so now the, for our next person there is very little information available for our next big top theatrical producer john decure jr um john decure jr was born in 1941 he is a designer architect and hollywood art director and production designer uh, since you're since you uh, know films craig you might be familiar with his father. Um, John is the son of one of the motion picture world's great production designers, John DeCure Sr. He worked on Cleopatra and South Pacific. Um, John DeCure Jr. especially liked to work on elaborately detailed design models for attractions. Um, he began his design studies at the age of 14 by apprenticing 
in the 20th Century Fox Art Department, working on films which included The King and I, South Pacific, and the Oscar-winning Cleopatra. Um, John completed a five-year architectural program at the University of Southern California and two years of graduate work at the Institute of Building Research and Technology. As a production designer for Disney, he worked on attractions for Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Epcot Center, and World Showcase, including serving as the project designer on the master planning phase for Epcot Center and World Showcase. Attractions he worked on include the Hall of Presidents, Space Mountain, Spaceship Earth, and Muppet Vision 3D. So, and as I turn my little page here that's sticking, um, later John returned to film design on, I know you know some of these films, Ghostbusters, the original, and he production designed Top Gun, Turner and Hooch, that one great classic, yeah. Fright Night, hey. you know, Sister There's... Act 2, here's the one you'll like, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, <laughs> and three episodes of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Well, in, in Turner and Hooch's defense, there's no such thing as a bad Tom Hanks movie, just ones that aren't quite as good as others. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the the Elvira one really threw me for a loop. Uh, so I, I don't quite know what to say about that going from from Disney to Elvira. That's mm-hmm. that's. And, and he's, Interesting. he's done others. I just thought those are the ones you had... Uh, the most memorable. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I, hey, it is. So I'll have to go back and watch that. Uh, it's probably been since I was a kid that I saw that. <laughs> now, according to Marty Scalar in an interview with Disney Avenue, said John DeCure Jr. was a whiz at doing studies of the key elements we were designing, how they related to one another, how much relative space they required, how people would move through the space. Of course, we studied many different approaches, and then as the pavilion subjects fell into place, they were positioned on this and other kinds and sizes of models. Certain elements, like a theme center, dropped out in favor of a themed show. The original 1982 Spaceship Earth show that Ray Bradbury worked on with us. It was Ray's descriptive and exciting words that brought the communication ideas into focus and enabled us to us the, to get the AT&T Corporation of that time as Epcot's theme show sponsor, of course, participant in Disney Speak. <laughs> and and that that is all I could find on Mr. DeCour. So, um, anyway, yep. so... Clear- I have nothing to add. <laughs> yeah, clearly a very humble man. <laughs> yeah. I have seen where he has given talks on his films and all that, so he, he has been out and about, you know, quite recently and all that. Yeah. So I'll have to do a little bit more digging on him. Mm-hmm. So, so now we're at our final name on the window, Bill Justice. He was born in Dayton, Ohio, on February 9th, 1914, Bill Justice grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. He attended the John Heron Art Institute, where he studied to be a portrait artist. After graduation in 1935, he saw an ad in Esquire magazine by the Walt Disney Studios, needing artists to work on Snow White. Um, Bill answered the ad and received a questionnaire indicating what he needed to be able to draw. He sent in his drawings and waited to hear from the studio. 
Within a couple of days, Bill received a telegram inviting him to come to the studio on a trial basis. Bill headed west and joined the Walt Disney Studios in 1937 as an in-betweener for $12.50 a week and was quickly promoted to animator. That's probably one of the most interesting um, uh, ways I've heard of, a, of a, someone getting hired by, by the Disney studio. Yeah, it's it, it's unique. It's it's cool. I like hearing that one. Yeah, me so. too. It's like, you know, sitting on a stool in the old Schwab um, delicatessen and getting discovered for films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Bill, so, hey, uh, kids, you're really going to have to Google all that <laughs> to yeah, figure just, out what I'm talking about. Just um, Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Just go watch it. <laughs> Um, Bill served as an animator on such classics as Fantasia, Saludos Amigos, Victory Through Air Power, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. Among the memorable characters he animated are the precocious Thumper from Bambi, with particular attention to the winter sequence in which Thumper joins Bambi on the ice. Bill was cast like an actor because of his skills with particular character types, in this case, cute. To make the action as realistic as possible, Bill and his fellow animators attended lectures given by animal experts, visited the Los Angeles Zoo, and viewed specially commissioned nature footage shot in the forests of Maine. Although production progressed slowly, Walt Disney was delighted and declared, Fellas, this stuff is pure gold. His most popular characters, though, may be the two mischievous chipmunks, Chip and Dale, who tormented Donald Duck over 24 cartoon episodes. And my favorite characters. Yes. <laughs> During the 1950s, Bill directed several experimental shorts, including Noah's Ark, a symposium on popular songs, and The Truth About Mother Goose, all of which were nominated for Academy Awards. Along with Disney legend Exitensio and artist T. He, Bill used the painstaking technique of stop-motion animation in live-action Disney features, including the Parent Trap's opening credits, the March of the Wooden Soldier scenes in Babes in Toyland, and the magical bedroom tidying-up scene in Mary Poppins. And, and the reason Bill started to experiment with stop motion was for the same reason that Mark Davis was assigned to Disneyland. He had heard that Walt was considering um, halting animation. And so Bill mm. was trying to look for a cheaper way to produce Disney quality animation. We actually, uh, you and I got to see the, uh, the, the characters that they used in the Parent Trap opening credits whenever we were at the Walt Disney Archives That's during right. our studio tour. So I'll, uh, I'll add that to the notes of things to throw in the show yeah. notes here. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, they were very cool. There was there was a lot of uh, stop motion characters that they were featuring in the archives that day, and mm -hmm. those those were some of the highlights. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, I, I read about uh, in an interview. I think it was, I think it's with Don Perry, uh, Disney historian Don Perry, um, interviewed him, and and Bill described just uh, how long it took to um, animate the wooden soldiers in Babes in Toyland. Oh my gosh. That was just so 
it took so long just to record a few, you know, film a few moments yeah. because you know there there were there were twelve soldiers in a scene and and all this stuff and they all had the march in unison and moving each one of them a fraction, oh, you yeah. know, at exactly the same amount. Uh, I actually, it was, oh. no, I, I actually have uh, Babes in Toyland on my uh, playlist for one of the things I'm going to watch out to my. Uh, during my flight to California, that's coming up. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm excited to to rewatch this now, especially mm-hmm. that the uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers yeah. scene again in greater detail. And it's a shame that you know we're recording this on uh, the Monday before this comes out. So tomorrow is the uh, the next wave of Treasures from the Disney Vault on TCM, and the uh, first movie that's kicking it off for the night is the Parent, Parent Trap. Trap. Right. So it's so if anyone has time travel and they can go back in time and you're listening to this now make sure you dvr it and pay attention <laughs> to the opening and That's again right. we're not talking about the Lindsay lohan version oh gosh we're talking no. about the original yes Haley mills <laughs> vehicle <laughs> um during his career bill contributed to 57 shorts and 19 features Bill also directed the Mickey Mouse March opening sequence for the popular Disney television series The Mickey Mouse Club, which premiered in 1955. The film critic and historian Leonard Maltin said if he had done nothing else but direct that unforgettable Mickey Mouse Club opening, he'd have a place in the hearts of baby boomer Disney fans everywhere. Agree. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I certainly do. (laughs) That's a song close to my heart. In a 1978 interview with Disney historian Don Perry, Bill talked about his relationship with Walt Disney. When I was first included in meetings, I wouldn't say anything. I'd just sit there and listen to what he had to say and whatever they were discussing. It's funny, Rolly Crump said the same thing (laughs) when I talked with him. And then finally one day he turned to me and said, What do you think, Bill? I told him what I thought, and I guess he liked it, because from then on, he would give me that funny look like, okay, let's hear it. I think he appreciated what I was trying to do, and he was wonderful to me. I mean, financially and every other way, and seemed to appreciate what I did, although he never came out and said it. (laughs) (laughs) Again, another recurring theme. Classic Walt. (laughs) Yes, but he would tell other people and, and figured it'd get back to the individual. <laughs> now, if you've seen the footage from Disneyland's opening day ceremony, you've seen the startling character costumes borrowed from the John Harris Ice Capade show. Uh, have you seen those, Craig? I have. Yeah, yes, they're a little, yes. little horrifying. Um, <laughs> Walt Disney assigned Bill to design the first true character costumes for Disneyland. Um, in an interview with Disney historian Jim Corcus, Bill talked about designing those costumes. Walt told me, other places can have thrill rides and bands and trains. Only we have our characters. The costume characters were very important to Walt. He said, Bill, always remember we don't want to torture the people who are wearing them. Keep in mind they've got to be as comfortable as possible. The first concern was always safety, and the second was accuracy. If Donald Duck can kick like a raquette, I've done something wrong in terms of proportion and being true to the character. (laughs) (laughs) It's not too easy, because to make them look like the animator's drawings is almost impossible. For instance, Donald Duck. Everyone wanted a good Donald Duck costume. I looked all over Los Angeles, and every place I couldn't find anybody with a three-inch neck and three webbed toes on his feet. (laughs) 
<laughs> I did find a little guy who was about four feet six. He wasn't a dwarf or a midget. He was just very small. I brought him up to wed, and I had him photographed, front view, side view, back view, etc. I had the photographs blown up to four feet six and put tissue paper over them and drew what would fit him. It was supposed to look like Donald Duck. But this guy we photographed sort of hung around and found out what we were spending on this costume. And he said, I want $200 every time I put it on. So we didn't hire him. <laughs> we found another guy who was bow-legged, and he looked better in it. And we've had a Donald Duck ever since. <laughs> oh, that's great. One of the ones you wouldn't think would be so popular is Eeyore. Winnie the Pooh characters became popular quickly. The children just seemed to relate to Eeyore. I learned that not every character can or should be funny. I ended up designing over 130 character costumes, and I am very proud of that. Now, recognizing Bill's immense talent, Walt Disney asked him to join WED in 1965. There, he programmed audio-animatronic figures for such Disneyland attractions as Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Mission to Mars, Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, Country Bear Jamboree, and America Sings. Bill once said, One of the most enjoyable Disneyland projects was the Pirates of the Caribbean. My first assignment was to program the pirates. I did the most sophisticated character in that show, who was the auctioneer. He had almost as many moves as Lincoln, and I guess they figured if I could handle that one, then the rest of the figures would be simple. It took me six weeks to program the auctioneer. People forget that they are heavy machines. That's what they are, not real people. Programming with those early crude systems is difficult to describe and difficult to accomplish. Later, we got into computers with a console where you could turn knobs. But with the pirates, I had to cut out all these discs. It was terrible. <laughs> I had the scene of the auctioneer filmed in live action, so I could use it as a guide. Walt came in and saw the auction scene, and he checked everything out, including the chickens. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, Good job, Bill. This was the only time he ever touched me, and one of the few times he ever thanked me in person. It was the last time I ever saw him. I, it's so weird how all of these stories where it's people's last uh, times with Walt, it's always something like very poignant that never happened before. Right. It's as if Walt knew yeah. that this was the last time, and I do think he did. Yeah. No, especially in, um, I think, on the 60 Years of Disneyland series, where I talk about Walt's last days, that scene with him and his nurse, Hazel George, in his office is really moving. Yeah. Um, be because th that's when you realize Walt knew. Yeah. You know, so, um, and, and to think we stood in that room, you know, when I, you and I, I know. were there. It's so. crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Bill went on to help bring to life the cast of Walt Disney World's The Hall of Presidents attractions in the Magic Kingdom. He said, I programmed the Hall of Presidents of Walt Disney World. We had 35 presidents on stage. <laughs> so this is a while back. <laughs> and there is a roll call, and they acknowledge their name. There are just slight, subtle movements to acknowledge. Washington's gestures to Lincoln, and Lincoln stands up and he gives his speech. He had to look dignified, so I kept his moves very simple. Shift of weight, 
put hands behind him, little gestures and things like that. He wasn't a speaker like a Hitler who was waving all over the place with his gestures. <laughs> the big problem was to keep the other 34 presidents alive, but not have them steal the scene to do something that was distracting. The people who built these things, the guys over at Mapo who put them together would complain, why did we put all that stuff in them? They barely move in the show. But they move enough to look alive. It's like directing a scene in a movie. You want the audience to look at who's speaking, but everyone else can't be frozen. That's not real. They have to have some movement, even though it is very subtle. About programming audio-animatronic characters, Bill said, you have to analyze every movement you animate. You're the actor. You have to put yourself into it and get the feel for what you are doing. Um, Bill also masterminded one of my favorite Magic Kingdom attractions, the Mickey Mouse Review. And it was featured at Walt Disney World and later Tokyo Disneyland. I've probably asked you this before, Craig. Did you ever see that? Yeah, no, I never got to um, see it. It was so, just wonderful. Just, just in videos. Yeah, I still watch it in videos. I saw it at both um, Florida and Tokyo. So um, I missed that one. That, that to be so lucky. Every every I think every park should have an attraction like that where the Disney characters are in it. Yeah, it's one of those ones seeing it. It it just makes me think like, why couldn't it have just made it a little while longer? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and so why couldn't they just update it? You know, and, yeah. and all that. I was always hoping they'd bring it back and, and put it in California Adventure out here because I mean, it would fit perfectly. Well, it would be just, it would fit in so well now. You could just throw Anna and Elsa in there and <laughs> add True. a little frozen section, and there you go. That's right. Have them belt out their whole song for 10 minutes. <laughs> anyway, um, Bill also had a talent for designing parades. In 1959, he designed the floats and costumes for one of the first Disneyland Christmas parades and also produced sketches for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Bill designed the City of Burbank float featuring Disney characters for the 1966 Tournament of Roses Parade, in which Walt Disney served as the Grand Marshal. Um, Bill created a number of murals for the Disney theme parks, including a massive family portrait of all the Disney characters for Walt Disney World's The Walt Disney Story pre-show area in the Magic Kingdom. And this contained more than 170 characters from all of the Disney features and many of the most popular shorts, and the mural took four months to complete. The tradition for several years was for new characters to be added to the mural after each new Disney animated feature was released, but this practice was discontinued sometime in the mid-1980s. When the attached building became the Main Street Exposition Hall, um, Bill's character mural was placed off limits and concealed behind a curtain. I don't even know if this exists anymore. I do not believe it does exist anymore. I think it was completely removed yeah and, and it probably removed and not preserved i yeah, but who knows I, I know well i know it was there for a while i want to say even in the past five or ten years so but um not visible to anyone uh anyone just walking by to see so i think it's kind of in a, a cast member only area now oh okay so it might still be there yeah okay i hope so it is. I, 
that's one of those things i i wish that i actually had worked in magic kingdom and got to learn some of these little secrets all you know uh, if if we want to start talking about world of motion and test track and all of that i can go on forever well you know we we will get to that park sooner <laughs> or later <laughs> I, I know and then then you'll really start hearing me i can tell my story of uh, sneaking into the room that still houses cranium command and have to witness the horrifying sight of seeing buzzy hanging there in a completely darkened room except for dim lights on the theater screens mm. but now i just kind of told the story so that's that's it well we'll have a whole new whole new more even more audience by the time yeah. we get to that um now bill also painted another mural in the magic kingdom's babyland baby station where it was refurbished in 1976 um, the baby station had reopened from an extensive rehab in january of 1976 and bill visited from california that march to paint a decorative mural for the area and said the cast members eyes and ears magazine um they were reporting on his visit bill started off by painting goofy and Donald painting a sign at the entrance to the station, saying welcome to Babyland, with some Dalmatian puppies playfully looking on. And of course, several of the puppies stumble into the buckets of paint, and off they go romping around the station walls, leaving hundreds of small footprints and meeting many of their favorite Disney characters. A count of the mural component shows there are 74 Dalmatians, with 1,268 spots on their backs, leaving 186 Six footprints and meeting 34 other Disney characters. That's quite a mural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, and now, is I have never been in Babyland. Is it, do you have any idea if it's still there? I have never been in. I would assume it is no longer there. Yeah. So, uh, not positive on that, but I, I would place as much money as I have. <laughs> That it is no longer there. Okay, well, you and I, in uh, for the Mega Meet, we've got to go over there and see yeah, if it's there. Yeah, I'm trying there. to do a quick Google search on it now. <laughs> so, well, while you're doing that, we'll say, um, after 42 years with the company, Bill retired in February 1979. He wrote a book about his Disney years called Justice for Disney. Only 1,000 signed copies were produced. Just just look for that book on eBay and see what it's going for. Um, and he was a frequent guest at Disneyana conventions. Um, Bill was named a Disney legend in 1996 and received the Windsor McKay Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2001. His latter years were tinged with just a bit of sadness. Um, Bill spent the last years of his life in a rehabilitation home with his family fighting to regain his possessions that were unceremoniously sold at auction from a storage unit. In early 2010, and I remember this, his family put out a call for fans to send thank you cards to Bill to help cheer him up. Um, Bill Justice passed away on February 10th, 2011, one day after his 97th birthday in Santa Monica, California. When Jim Corcus asked Bill how he'd like to be remembered, Bill replied, Walt Disney and the people I worked with at the studio wrote the book on quality animation. I'd like to think I helped with a page here and there. Uh. So, 
So, Craig, now that we've learned a bit about the extraordinary accomplishments of Claude Coates, Mark Davis, John DeCure Jr., and Bill Justice, what are your thoughts as to why their window is titled Big Top Theatrical Productions Famous Since 55, Shows for World's Fairs and International Expositions? Well, I mean, obviously... uh since 55 that's going to bring in disneyland a little bit uh clearly we know that uh some of them had a fan they had a hand in the world's fair as well as world showcase um and i mean the world's fair kind of was a precursor to our world showcase as well too uh the big top theatrical productions i that's still kind of throwing me for a loop. Was there something Dumbo in there that I didn't really put together before? Or am I just, is it that it's almost midnight my time and I am not thinking clearly? <laughs> I, I'm just thinking because of all the shows they worked on, you know, the Mark Davis yeah. shows and, uh, you know, e- even the dark rides are really shows when you think about it that you ride That's a through. very good point. Yeah. So, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is a 20 minute show. So that's what what I was thinking. But what amazes me is, you know, uh, Mark Davis's um, biography, it it calls, it says, you know, Mark Davis, he's he's Disney's Renaissance man. They were, all of these people were Renaissance men. I mean, when you think of how their talents were in so many different areas, they weren't just animators or artists or, I mean, you know, Bill, look at what Bill Justice did. Yeah. In his career, I mean, he went from being an artist to to programming three dimensional figures, and and look at all the things he designed, and and the same with Mark Davis, where he could he could draw, animate, tell stories, uh, you know, to tell stories through um, animation, and um, you know, Bill Justice started out as a portrait artist and then he could create these rich rich environments in three dimensions it's there all and then there's John DeCour who could do films as well as these amazing models for for attractions for for Epcot and Disney World and all that um yeah they they all were such an integral cog in the entire puzzle that that is Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Walt Disney Studios. Everyone had an important role to play, um, and it's you know it, it's great. I kind of mentioned it before. It's just great that we have something like this, and we have historians out there who work hard to make sure that these names are are kept relevant and get brought up. Because yeah, in another fifty years, Disney fans are still going to be well versed on who Mark Davis is. That's not just gonna suddenly disappear because his name is thrown around so much especially with his book as you you just mentioned being uh the renaissance man but you know it's it's kind of our jobs to keep people like bill justice and claude Coates uh in in our knowledge so that way uh that way they're they you never forget about what they've done because i mean just with with Claude Coates, just think of what Haunted Mansion or Pirates would be without him. It's 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 tough. Oh, I know, I know, and just how how masterful Walt Disney was in gathering these people up and yep. pairing them up, and 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 recognizing they had skills that even they didn't know they had. Exactly. No, that's it. It takes a great leader like Walt to bring that all together. 
but it also takes the people who are doing the the heavy work on there and he he knew how to find the best people to do that <laughs> and and if you want to to hear more about virtually everything we've talked about uh we go back and listen to previous episodes of connecting with walt and definitely previous episodes of my history episodes on our Disneyland show, the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition, because even with some of these attractions, I've gone into way more detail. And definitely with these Imagineers, well, the exception of one, um, I've gone into a lot more detail. So so if you're interested in that, um, listen to those. Also, if you want to read a little more, um, you know, many books, films, articles, and interviews and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including um, the D23, the official Disney fan club. Go to their website and their, their magazines are also wonderful resources that I've used. Um, WDW News Today, the magazine, they had a wonderful article by Daniel um, Butcher on Mark Davis, Imagineering Master. Um, the E-Ticket Magazine, uh, you can still find those around, and they're still um, being sold at the Walt Disney Family Museum. I had some great articles on Bill Justice, Mark Davis, and Claude Coates. The Walt Disney, uh, the Walt's People series, edited by Didier Guez, um, he collects uh, sort of um, interviews with with uh, Disney uh, people who, who worked with Walt that would be lost to time if he didn't gather them up. Um, Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of the Disney Theme Park by Jeff Curdy. And Working with Disney, Interviews with Animators, Producers, and Artists by Don Perry. And Don did uh, these interviews himself, so they're, they're really fascinating. Oh. Um, p- um, so, so um, Craig, any, any th- anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? I... T- can't think of anything. Yeah, I know you'll be uh, out. You'll be out in Walt's Park. Yes, I will. Unfortunately, only for a uh, only for a day. Mm-hmm. So just a just a quick trip to show my dad around to all of the all of the things that he's missed because he hasn't been there since. Uh, gosh, I was nineteen ninety nine now. So oh gosh, a lot's changed. The parking lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Whenever, <laughs> whenever we were there, it was it was just going through the uh, demolition, mm-hmm. and they were they were starting to level. I believe they were in maybe the early stages of starting to get some of the structures up for California Adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a long, long time ago. So uh, it's it'll be a complete new experience for him oh. which is awesome i just I, w- I wish we had a little bit more time to go around and see everything and he's going back and forth deciding what he wants to do for the nighttime entertainment if he wants to do uh, world of color or if he wants to do uh the disneyland forever fireworks and now with all of the rumors starting to to build up bigger and bigger uh about Disneyland Forever going away, I think that's going to end up uh, taking taking the the cake on that. As impressive as World of Color is, especially for a first timer, um, Disneyland Forever just it, it's a shame if they do end that show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a rumor is the Star Wars expansion is just encroaching, uh, so where it's a safety issue to launch the fireworks right now. See, and I don't understand that because you know I got to. 
my last ABD out there, I actually got to look at where they're shooting the fireworks off from, and I wouldn't, I would not put that together. Yeah, with what they're doing with Star Wars. I mean, unless there's other things happening, but where they're launching the fireworks, that's right next to the parade building, right? And that hasn't moved at all, so right. there's no reason why that should yeah. be the case. I I just hope it's one of those rumors that was. You know, it was just kind of whispered about, but really had no context, and everyone just took it and ran with it. Let's let's hope so. It's a great show. So it really is. Yeah. Sorry, that just went on there, but <laughs> <laughs> well, and, very excited for it. And anyway, so um, well, and um, well, have fun, have fun in Walks Park. <laughs> so, and um, and for all of you, we hope you have a happy Independence Day. Yes. And so be sure if you're in one of the Disney parks, go see Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland or the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World and attend the flag retreat ceremony in, yes. in the parks when you're there. And, and, and also um, the American Experience, American Adventure at um, Epcot Center, as I still call it. Um, Agree. And please join us next week for episode 16 of Connecting with Walt, The Magic Kingdom. Is The Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World simply a larger version of Disneyland? Or did the Imagineers learn from Disneyland when designing The Magic Kingdom? We'll compare and contrast the layout and design of The Magic Kingdom with Walt's Disneyland. Was it made with a magical plan? So, Craig, until our next episode, we already talked about where you'll be lurking, but um, that'll be at Disneyland. But um, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, you know, you can always watch the Disney World edition, um, watch the Universal edition, and find me on Twitter at Teleclaster and everywhere else that I am. And uh, also... Another little shameless plug for uh, if you haven't been listening to Rhino's new podcast, Dispop, uh, he and I are doing usually about bi-weekly movie reviews on there, including uh, Disney Disney movies and then everything outside. So uh, that's fun. That's where I kind of like with this one. I get to nerd out about history with you in there. I get to nerd out about movies. Mm-hmm. And it's just... Life is good right now. <laughs> good. Excellent. Well, what about you? Well, Where are you? You can find me every Sunday night on the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto-Woodley, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. So listen to us live on Mixler Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at Michael Bowling one or I'm sorry, I'm at mbowling121. On Facebook, I'm Musketeer Michael. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So until next time, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Mm-hmm.